standing nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jen Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is August the first, two thousand and six. Well, I heard on the news in the middle of the night last night that Fidel Castro is gravely ill. Uh, the pundits seem to be rushing, rushing to bury the man. My goodness, um, I guess. We'll have to wait a few days to see the extent of um, his illness. This is a man who has outlasted eight U.S. presidents. He will be 80 years old on August the 13th. Let us hope that he will still be here to celebrate his birthday. <laughs> Check out the New Yorker. Uh, the issue is July 31st. They have a piece by John Lee Anderson. Not altogether sympathetic, uh, and certainly when he wrote it, he did not know that Castro was ill. It's called "Letter from Cuba: Castro's Last Battle." Can the revolution outlive its leader? By John Lee Anderson, New Yorker Magazine, July thirty-first, two thousand and six. Now, um, I excerpted a few bits of uh, this article. For the Thursday morning show,、uh, that's at eight twenty Thursday morning, August the third. I focused on Castro's brother Raúl's eldest daughter.、Uh, she is a fascinating woman. She's a sexologist, and uh, uh, basically, she's working. To get new laws to help lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgendered Cubans, that is cutting edge, right?、Uh, there's even somebody putting up a exhibition of Robert Maplethorpe. Oh my, isn't it wonderful? Isn't progress grand? Anyway, when Fidel Castro triumphed back in the 1950s, the Cuban Revolution was、uh, the romance of. Of the day, I remember I was back in New York City, and we all went dancing and drinking and celebrating. I was one of those youthful souls who believed that it was all, all just evidence that the world, the globe, all the countries were slouching towards socialism, each in its own way, and that good guys would prevail over the corrupt capitalist class, which would be, of course.、Uh, Old hat, deja vu, and ah,、uh, uh, you know the freedom-loving folks would win, and the workers would rule. Blah 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 blah. But I'm trying to catch up. It's been now half a century, 
half a century, right? Uh, Castro, yes, he will celebrate his 80th birthday on August 13th. In this article by John Anderson, <laughs> yes, he says more than the fact that Fidel takes baseball seriously. Uh, uh, he says that Castro appears less and less frequently in public. Uh, his stamina is legendary. He was 32 when he overthrew Cuba's dictator, Batista, back in 1959. With that guerrilla army of bearded fighters that included Ernesto Che Guevara, Castro presented himself as a nationalist, determined to eradicate Cuba's gangster-run casino culture and end its reputation as, quote, the whorehouse of the Caribbean. Once in power, he moved quickly to the left, nationalizing large plantations. His mother's was among those seized. He nationalized foreign-owned businesses. Well, <laughs> there you go, folks. He blew it, right? Uh, seems to me just amazing that Castro has survived uh, when we think what happened in Chile and everywhere. Anyway... He moved closer to the Soviet Union. We know all of that. Um, the Bay of Pigs invasion, 1961, the CIA, so forth. Uh, the invasion was ignominiously defeated, and since then, despite the U.S. trade embargo and numerous assassination attempts, Fidel Castro, yes, has outlasted, whoops, nine, that's right, it's not eight, it's nine American presidents. I lost count. He's the world's longest-serving ruler as I said before, for us, for those of us uh, coming of age when he did, uh, he was our dream date. In June 2001, Castro fainted from heat exhaustion during a lengthy public address. Then in 2004, after delivering that speech, you remember he stumbled and fell, shattered his left kneecap and uh, broke his right arm. He still gives those long speeches for which he is infamous. Yes, his hands sometimes tremble. He walks unsteadily. Uh, he has occasional bouts of forgetfulness and incoherence and sometimes falls asleep in public. Well, well. <laughs> yes. Um, briefings to Congress last year. Uh, the CIA reported that Castro was suffering from Parkinson's. Castro mocked that report, saying that if it were true... Uh, he would still be able to stay in office. Uh, he cited Pope John Paul II as his model. Okay, the author of this article goes on to say that this spring, a friend of Castro's, a veteran party loyalist, told the author that the Cuban leader was, leader was literally anguished over his advancing years. He was obsessed by the idea that socialism might not survive him. As a result, Castro has launched his last great fight, which he calls the Battle of Ideas. Ah, yes, the battle for men's minds, folks. I remember, I remember the battle for men's minds. My teachers in college uh, said that this was the only battle that mattered. It was the battle for imagination, the imaginations of... The young, particularly, I have always thought over the years, uh, the years, the half century since Castro came to power, how wonderful it might be 
if some of the, uh, uh, well, at least the democratic regimes in our country had tried to embrace Castro and the Cuban people, uh, just think what a wonderful world that could have been if we, his neighbors, his, uh, what is it, his, I don't want to say big brother, that sounds kind of weird, yes, uh, his, his neighbors, the people who should have been his best friends, uh, we should have helped him every way possible, uh, and just think what Cuba could have been instead of becoming a socialist theme park, which is about what's happened, uh, in any case, this article goes on to say that Castro's goal is to re-engage Cubans with the ideals of the revolution, especially young Cubans, who came of age during what he called the special period. That was the time in the early 90s when the collapse of the Soviet Union brought a precipitous end to Cuba's subsidies and the economy imploded. That crisis forced Castro to allow greater openness in the island's economic and civil life. Oh, he now seems determined to reverse that. Now, last November, he gave a speech saying this country can self-destruct. This revolution can destroy itself. Referring to the Americans, that is the North Americans, Castro said, they cannot destroy it, the revolution. They cannot destroy it. But we can. We can destroy it and it would be our fault. Hmm. He's got that right. The greatest fear uh, that some of us have is that um, after Castro uh, leaves us, the uh, the what is it the the mafia, the Miami mafia, will descend, and we'll have a situation in Cuba somewhat like what happened in Russia after. Uh, Gorbachev was forced uh, out. Let's see. You remember back in May, um, <laughs> Castro was accused of being one of the world's richest leaders. Remember Forbes magazine estimated that he was worth $900 million. And Castro said that was totally absurd. Uh he said, we must continue to pulverize the lies that are told against us. This is the ideological battle. Everything is the battle of ideas. Mm -hmm. And this article goes on to um, argue about whether that's, uh, uh, whether an, an, an analogy might be to the Red Guards in China or to the Taliban, blah, blah, blah. Um, it seems to me that... Uh, Castro is just trying to get the social workers to do their job. Uh, in any case, yes, the American officials fear that pent-up chaos could erupt into an open unrest upon Castro's death, looting, rioting, and revenge killings. I kind of think that's not on the cards, but... Uh, who knows, who knows, who knows? Um. <laughs> In any case, Castro has confirmed that, as the Cubans believe, he expected his brother, the defense minister, to inherit the leadership of Cuba's uh, Communist Party. 
Raul now is 75 years old, uh, and he has, in effect, taken over for Castro. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of material here in this article about the Ilian Gonzalez affair and about the FBI and about the fact that Cubans have from time to time had to survive on split pea porridge. <laughs> yes, I remember my younger son Peter once saying when he was just a little kid, he said, well, couldn't we just go to Cuba and surrender? And I said, well, I, I don't think, you know, we could be of much help to them. They probably need people who could uh, do some work. Um, in any case, uh, the contradictions of Cuban society are everywhere. Yes, everywhere to be seen. Let me tell you a little bit about um, Castro's family. Most people uh, are not aware of these uh, folks. They've been kind of in the background, and uh, recently Castro seems to want to bring them out where folks can see them. Uh, his wife, his wife, uh, is Dalia, D-A-L-I-A, Soto de Valle. She's been his wife for 40 years. His first marriage ended in divorce. Uh, this article says it is not clear when or whether they were legally married. Uh, she's become more visible since the Ilian Gonzalez standoff. Now, uh, Dahlia is the mother of five of his sons, Alexis, Alexander, Alejandro, uh, Antonio, and Angel. Um, in 2000, the author says, I had lunch with Antonio Castro, the oldest. He's an orthopedic uh, surgeon. He was at a hospital in Havana. He was doing his residency there. Uh, he's described as polite but reserved. Um, Alexis is a photographer... The less known brothers are Alexander, works as a cameraman for Cuban television, and Alejandro, a computer programmer, and Angel, the youngest, who has not yet found his profession. Castro divorced his first wife, Myrta Diaz-Balart, the mother of his firstborn son, Fidel, back in 1955. That was before uh, Castro came to power. She remarried. She has lived in Madrid for many years. She often travels to Cuba to visit her son. She has never spoken publicly about her former husband, but her nephew, Lincoln Diaz-Ballard, <laughs> a Republican congressman from Florida, is one of Castro's most ardent critics. Wow, yes. Fidel Castro Diaz-Ballard, or Fidelito, is a Soviet-educated nuclear physicist. Uh, this is Castro's oldest son, Fidelito. He ran Cuba's Atomic Energy Commission until the early 90s when he was removed from that post. Uh, Castro said during a trip to Spain that he had fired his son for incompetence lately, however. Uh, Fidelito has reemerged and is now said to be an advisor to his father. Okay. And then there's a description of Fidelito coming into a restaurant he has a beard and bears a striking resemblance to his father with the same pronounced Roman nose and proud profile. 
It was as if Fidel Castro himself, 30 years younger, had just walked in. Castro also has a daughter, Elena Fernandez, product of an affair with a society woman in the late 50s. In 1993, Elena, A-L-I-N-A, Elena, I think, uh, who had long been estranged from her father, fled to Europe in disguise. She later settled in Miami, where she hosts a radio show, Simply Alina. It is dedicated to attacking him. Well, looks like some members of his family uh, have ideas. Yes, they are like a Greek play. In any case, uh, the article goes on to give a detailed description of Raul Castro and his good wife, she was educated at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They have four children. Uh, <laughs> As I said, this is not a particularly sympathetic article. I think we can look for those uh, this week, because once Fidel leaves us, I think he will probably be deified by those of us who admired him. Talk about stick-to-itiveness. Uh, as I said, we could have had the best of all worlds, or at least the best of two worlds, if the United States, if the government, if our administrations could have pulled themselves together and reached out, made um, friends with Fidel. Uh, I guess it just wasn't in the cards. That's so darn aggravating. Uh, in any case, um, check it out. Check it out. It's in the July 31st New Yorker 2006. And of course, there will be uh, a barrage of uh, books and articles about Cuba and what Cuba meant. I find that uh, it's what I would call one of the great lost opportunities. Uh, I, I've had so many listeners write to me telling me about the evils of um, communist ideology. And I have no doubt that they're all correct. Uh, we all know that absolutism of any kind leads to bad, sad things. Uh, that's why it seems to me that the best way, you know, the best way to... Uh, deal with the devil or <laughs> even even get rid of the devil is to go to bed with him. That is to say, if you embrace your enemy and make your enemy your friend, it might be humanly possible, just might be humanly possible to transcend all the nonsense that's keeping you separate. Uh, I think of this as I listen to the news and these Absurd wars go on and on. Uh, the Middle East is this uh, chaos, this madness. I remember the late great Oscar Wilde saying, it's no good wringing your hands and saying how wicked, how wicked wars are, how evil men are, and uh, uh, how they uh, are in league with the devil when they go to war. Uh, he said, the only thing that will stop the wars is when people realize, uh, when governments realize that they are absurd, 
that they profit no one, and that, of course, they can kill not just all of us today, but they can kill the future. Uh, that has been happening now for, oh, at least half a century. Uh, once upon a time, all we could kill was one generation. I pulled out a book late last night when I couldn't sleep, and... uh I find that I'm up like pre-industrial people. I seem to get up at midnight and stay up till three, uh, read and meditate. Um, I pulled out this international anthology of writings from antiquity to the present, written by women on the subject of war. I always like to see what the women have to say, see if it's any different than what the boys have to say. The truth is that men somehow or another find war to be meaningful. I've never understood quite why. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just think of it as breakage. Um, the sort of people who can go to war and kill someone because um, they don't read the same book you do or they don't even like the same book. Yes, they don't like it. Uh, these messianic males um, who rule nuclear nations... In any case, this is a anthology of writings, and I went to the very, very beginning. I went back to the first war protester, believed to be a woman, a Sumerian poet, priestess, first known poet, Enhenana, uh, approximately 2,300 before the Common Era, B.C.E., that would be 4,306 years ago. <laughs> okay, yes. Her works are preserved on artifact from an ancient civilization, and of course, her lament is exactly the same lament that is known to the women of today. She wrote, Lament to the Spirit of War. This is a translation by Daniela. Giosefa, uh, G-I-O-S-E-F-F-I. This is the woman who edited and introduced this book, actually, this international anthology uh, of writings on war by women. This Sumerian poet writes... You hack everything down in battle, god of war, with your fierce wings. You slice away the land and charge, disguised as a raging storm, growl as a roaring hurricane, yell like a tempest yells. Thunder, rage, roar, and drum expel evil winds. Your feet are filled with anxiety on your lyre of moans. I hear your loud dirge scream. Like a fiery monster, you fill the land with poison. As thunder, you growl over the earth. Trees and bushes collapse before you. You are blood rushing down a mountain. Spirit of hate, greed and anger. Dominator of heaven and earth. Your fire wafts over our land, riding on a beast. With indomitable commands, you decide all fate. You triumph over all our rights. Who can explain? 
why you go on so? <laughs> explaining a war. <laughs> what a what a wonderful idea that is, trying to explain or give meaning to these primal uh, impulses, these desires of men for blood. I think bloodlust is simply something that our species has got to uh, contain or control. Uh, we haven't got long to figure out how. Right up against the wire, folks. Uh, here is what um, Simone de Beauvoir says about that. That's a, a French feminist uh, back in... Uh, she was born 1908, died uh, 1986... Simone writes, to refuse to countenance a war that dares not speak its true name, you can no longer mumble the old excuse, we didn't know. Now that you do know, can you continue to feign ignorance or content yourself with mere token utterance of horrified sympathy? This is interesting, so interesting. What we know and what we do seems completely separate. Uh, James Baldwin once wrote, we, we cannot, we cannot believe what we say we believe. If we did believe what we say we believe, then we simply could not do what we do. Not for 24 hours, yes. Um, Sojourner Truth writes, Hopefully, she's an American, uh, African-American suffragist. Uh, she wrote this back in the uh, uh, 17th, no, the 19th century. She wrote, if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down, then all the women together ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. <laughs> well... This is a sweet thought. Um, in any case, the woman who put this book together writes that these are the voices. This book is the voices of Cassandra's sisters, the mothers and the daughters of our faltering planet, our common homeland. These women need to be heeded as much as the maligned but clairvoyant Cassandra. Surely the earth can be saved by all the people who insist on love, the distinguished African-American author Alice Walker says. May her conviction prove true as women everywhere link hands to save Earth. Save the universal mother, yes, blue marbled globe afloat in endless space. Save it from the deadly war machine. I think of Virginia Woolf writing back in... uh, the period just before World War II, she wrote, As a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I want no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. Uh, Virginia Woolf committed suicide in 1941. She said she was hearing voices again. Uh, She was convinced that wars were more than just... uh, Um, what is that, Uh, economic battles or battles for resources and goods. She thought there was some kind of mass psychosis operating. Uh, 
some dark Jungian shadow, some need to uh, destroy. She and her husband Leonard had filled their garage with uh, uh, gasoline, something to to uh, to commit suicide with. Both of them to uh, uh, burn themselves up if Hitler invaded. Uh, Leonard Wolf was Jewish, but before uh, that happened, Virginia herself put stones in the pockets of her jacket and walked into the river and died. Uh, she was 58, and she saw it all coming. Ah, I see what it is. Too much late-night war poetry, and I've had no coffee today. No wonder. I feel as if I'm underwater. I'm afraid this war is getting to me. I think I'll have to go to the seashore, throw myself in the ocean. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. listening to 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno, and online at www.kpfa.org. Up next, Free Speech Radio News. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, August 1st, 2006. I'm Mitch Jezerich at Pacifica Station.